Before we get started today, I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor for this show, SportsCastingSource.com and the Jay Sanderson Scorebook and Down Dial. Both are essential tools for your broadcast toolbox this year. I pierce and harnish, but a huge third down You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voiced guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a sportscaster in the process of relocating to the Twin Cities and currently homeless and unemployed. Obviously, that's somewhat of an exaggeration, but this podcast is dedicated to the sportscasting industry and sharing the stories of sportscasters at all levels from around the country. Before we get started, I want to take a quick moment to thank my friend Gary Ellenbolt, a broadcaster from South Dakota Public Radio, who's allowing me to borrow a headset while most of my equipment right now is buried deep inside my storage unit as I try to move to the Twin Cities. Today, the Say the Damn Score studio is in Mankato, Minnesota, at my brother-in-law's house, and I'm happy to be joined via Skype by the voice of the Oklahoma Sooners, Toby Rowland. Toby, how's it going? I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Logan? No, any better, and I'd be you. That's my bad joke <laughs> that I use when everybody says that. I like it. I like it. So I guess I wanted to – I almost always focus this conversation on sports casting and not sports, but because you are in a unique position as the voice of the Oklahoma Sooners, I want to just uh, take a brief moment to talk about an aspect of sports that I really miss – that probably no one else cares about. So if you want to skip ahead a couple minutes, feel free. But as the voice of the Sooners, I'm born and raised in Nebraska, and I miss that rivalry between the two of them every single fall, even though it probably wouldn't have gone good for the Huskers over the last couple years. You're a lifetime Oklahoma fan. How do you, What do you miss about that particular matchup? I'm with you, brother. Um... I am very much looking forward to hearing a couple of years a home and home with Nebraska. In fact, I think we got two of them coming up in the next decade or so. And I'm so happy that um, the two athletic departments have seen the light of day a little bit. But yeah, that is one of the, it is the saddest element of the Big 12 kind of breaking apart a few summers ago is us losing Nebraska. And specifically, the Oklahoma-Nebraska rivalry, which I think was one of the greats in, in all of college, not just football, but college sports. It was unique, as you well know, because it wasn't a rivalry necessarily filled with hate. I think the Oklahoma-Texas rivalry, there's a lot of vitriol. and Certainly, Auburn-Alabama and Ohio State-Michigan could say the same thing. The Oklahoma-Nebraska rivalry was very respectful uh, through the years. And the two programs, coaches, fan bases, uh, players, for the most part, had a ton of respect for each other. And the number of big games that they played through the years with the Orange Bowl on the line and, of course, the game of the century in 1971 and 
on and on and on. Uh, I'm with you. I really miss our trips to Lincoln, uh, seeing that block in come to Norman, and uh, some of the great games that we had against each other. Hopefully sometime in the future for our kids or grandkids, we can find ourselves in the same conference again. I think that would be good for uh, all of college sports. One of the most influential radio calls that uh, in me wanting to eventually be a radio broadcaster was from probably one of your worst memories, but it was uh, the the reverse pass to Eric Crouch in, I believe, mm-hmm. 2001, where Nebraska won in a 1-2 matchup, and I still remember it was Warren Swain calling it, and you could see he was confused for a minute. He hesitated, and he said, they throw it to... Crouch? Yeah, anyway, <laughs> that's uh, that's my uh, tangent that I wanted to start off on. We can get to broadcasting now. But uh, I guess what I like to do to just break the ice with just about everybody is say, when was the first time you knew you wanted to go into sportscasting? Well, um, you know, I, I grew up probably like a lot in uh, this profession, just a giant sports fan, but not quite good enough in athletics to make a career out of playing uh played basketball and uh, played small college basketball at southern nazarene university here in bethany oklahoma and uh played a little tennis and baseball growing up but uh i loved sports you know with a passion and would uh keep score in my little homemade scorebook of cincinnati reds games growing up my dad was a big Johnny Bench fan, and so and my brother and I would play 64-team NCAA basketball tournaments on our Dr. J goal in the basement, and we'd play all 63 games so we had a champion. I, you know, I, I was a big sports fan. My, my sophomore year in college, I was an accounting major, and it, was going, it wasn't going great. I didn't love it. I, I didn't have a passion for it, and I remember having a conversation my sophomore year with my dad saying, I, I don't know if I want to do this for the rest of my life. I'm not sure I'm in the right field. And he said, well, what would be the greatest job you could ever possibly imagine having? And I said, well, I mean, the, the best job anybody could ever possibly have would be to be a sports broadcaster. I mean, to get to figure out a way to get paid to go to games would, you know, I can't imagine anything better than that. And that was the moment that kind of flipped the switch for me. And he encouraged me to pursue that. and we started a a career path down that road. I think I could probably honestly say I always in the back of my mind, um, maybe even subconsciously, uh, thought this is what I want to do with my life. But the actual decision that this is what I'm going to do with my life came my sophomore year at, at Southern Nazarene university. And obviously like everyone, there were a lot of, uh, ups and downs and doors that were shut and, and unbelievable, fortunate moments that have led to this day now where I'm at the University of Oklahoma. But thank goodness my dad in that talk didn't tell me to stick with accounting and encourage me to go into sports broadcasting. Otherwise, I, don't, I might be doing somebody's taxes right now. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, I, I very much enjoy the profession that I've chosen. I was going to say, you must be filled with regret every Saturday when you're sitting in that booth over uh, 90 to 100,000 people when you're like, man, I could be in a cubicle right now. <laughs> you know, we're, we're lucky. Um, the, uh, the jobs we have, I, I think, well, I shouldn't say that. I'll just speak for myself. 
I consider myself fortunate on a, almost every game when you look out over either a football crowd or you're, you're sitting courtside in a basketball arena or even in a baseball press box. I love calling baseball to be able to do what we do for a living and to make a living at it. And not, and not just that, but to get to, in, in this case, do it at an influential university um, that, that plays in big games and uh, has big moments is um, it's a gift. It really is. And I, and I hope, hope I never take it for granted. One of the things that I found really interesting about your path to where you were is that, you know, it's, you didn't come from the big broadcast factory school. You came from Southern Nazarene. And I went to a small NAIA college in Iowa. And I always find it really interesting, the paths that people have to follow going from a small school to making the big time. There's a lot of people who have done it, yourself included. But what are some of the advantages that you see from going to a Southern Nazarene instead of a Northwestern or a Syracuse or a Missouri? You know, I don't know that I can speak to what the advantages are because I, I don't, I don't know how the other half lived. Um, I don't know what it was like to go to a Syracuse or Northwestern or Missouri. I can tell you what I'm thankful for though, about my path. And I got very fortunate at Southern Nazarene, um, upon graduation and actually starting my senior year there to get to get to be uh, to kind of run the sports information department for them they didn't have one of those and they were going to expand to several more sports in the coming years and so they needed that they needed a sports information department and as a part of that I got to call the games and so to learn how to call basketball while I was still in school from our chair of the business department, Larry Mills, who to this day is probably the, been the most influential on my play-by-play style. Um, and then they started football and baseball while I was working there. So I got to learn how to call those sports and did had to do everything. I mean, a one-man bandit completely uh, in the booth, all alone, calling a football game, no color analyst, no statistician, no spotter no engineer. You had to learn all aspects of the production of a baseball, football, basketball broadcast, whatever the case may be. And I mean, that is into the fire. And I, and I would hate to listen back to those broadcasts today. I'm sure they were terrible, but it was trial by fire. And to this day, I, I appreciate every man's job in our booth. You know, we, it's easy for um, me and guys in this position now who have a color analyst and a spotter and a statistician and an engineer and a sideline reporter, and in our case, a sideline analyst, somebody back in Jefferson City pushing all the buttons. I mean, all, all I have to do on a Saturday now is sit down and describe the plays in front of me, and all of the other stressful things are taken care of by um, – professionals who are great at their job, but I have a greater appreciation, I think, for everything that they do and for how hard all of their jobs are, because I've had to do each and every one of them at, at some point in, in my career. Um, you know, I think you got to give, I have to give a ton of thanks 
and credit to Joe Castiglione, our athletic director at the University of Oklahoma, for quite frankly rolling the dice on me when he hired me. I had play-by-play experience. I think I had a good resume tape, um, but I didn't come from Missouri, which is where he's from, or one of the places that you tend to hire play-by-play guys from. And to look past that and to say, you know, it doesn't matter. I like his style or whatever he said to himself. I'm thankful for that because it is a, it it is perceived anyway, at least I perceived it as a disadvantage um, being out there looking, you know, trying to find um, a job in in the play-by-play world, having not gone that route. So you're right. When I see guys like yourself or others who have gone to some of the NAI institutions and have made it um, small college, not just NAI, but small college and have made it. It's always intriguing to sit down and say, hey, tell me your story. Um, because it, you know, it's, I, I, I am fortunate now I teach a class at the university of Oklahoma on play by play. And um, I look forward to the day when we can put someone from our class out there and, and get one of the big jobs and maybe start to challenge some of those other schools. So, um, it was a unique path, but I'm certainly uh, appreciative for it. One of the things that I, I don't want to say struggled with just, but had to overcome was at a small school, you get a lot of reps, but you don't get a lot of feedback or people telling you you're doing this right or this wrong. You kind of have to figure it out on your own. How did you, it's easy to develop bad habits. How did you avoid some of those pitfalls or did you, did you develop them and how did you get rid of them? That's a great point you make. Um, you know, we're talking for me mid nineties through early two thousands when I was at Southern Nazarene and really kind of the birth of the internet broadcasting on the internet. And so a lot of what I, there, there was some of our games that were put on local radio, but a lot of our games were being sent out over the internet with very few people listening, some parents in remote States and, things like that. And that's good and bad. Uh, the good is if you're really bad, there's nobody to tell you you're really bad. And, and the good is if you do something good, there's nobody to tell you did any good. You also, like you said, don't get a, a ton of feedback. Um, I think what has helped me is I was a huge fan, a uh, connoisseur lover to this day of sports on the radio and have, my whole life, whether it's Marty Brenneman with the Reds or John Brooks and Bob Barry at the University of Oklahoma or Mark Boyle with the Indiana Pacers or uh, whatever my teams were, even if it wasn't my teams, I, I love listening to satellite radio, driving around and, and, and hearing others. Um, so I had a pretty good knowledge of what it's supposed to sound like. You know, what, what, not necessarily copying everything that Marty Brenneman did, but I knew how a baseball game was supposed to sound. I think our styles are vastly different, but how to construct a basketball broadcast. So I think that gave me a good foundation to work from because I had consumed so much of it uh, growing up. Then when you get to a certain level, uh, the feedback that flows in is unavoidable, you know, um, when you are at a place like the university of Oklahoma, the trick is not the trick is to weed out the needless feedback. 
and to figure out which feedback is, is productive. And I was not very good at that, quite frankly, for the first couple of years in this job. I heard everything everybody said, and it, uh, it's hard. You just can't make everybody happy. So, um, but I think to answer your question directly, not getting feedback on my particular, uh, self, my feedback came from me. I would record the broadcast. I would listen back. I'd say, that's not the way it's supposed to sound. I like that. I don't like that. Every once in a while, I, I'd, uh, been the year of a professional, um, around here in that business. But for the most part, it was just kind of self-made cobbled together a career. And, um, there's a lot of duct tape and pieces of wood and iron that were kind of welded together and wrapped around each other. And, and hopefully it's worked somehow. You mentioned that you of course owed the AD Joe Joe Castiglione uh, a ton for taking a chance and rolling the dice on you. When you go back to that process, what did you do to sell yourself to Joe that made you stand out? Because there was a lot of really big names up for that position uh, at the time. I I don't know the entire process, but I saw that uh, Bob Carpenter, Mitch Holtis, Greg Sharp were all kind of involved in names, at least in the rumor mill. What did you do to sell yourself to Joe? You know, um, that's a kind of a funny story. I, I, when the process started and having grown up a, a huge Oklahoma Sooner fan and fully appreciating this position and, and have filled this chair and, and we were talking Walter Cronkite and Kurt Gowdy and John Brooks, and Bob Berry and on and on. Cause there's going to be, guys with much more impressive resumes from coast to coast who would, who would love this job. Just let's just don't get our hopes up too high here. And as the process went along and, you know, we, we kind of were filled in as you made, you made cuts here and cuts to the top five and down to the final three and so forth and so on. And, um, I think in hindsight, what helped me one, I was on the, radio crew already as the sideline guy. So there was a familiarity there that probably um, got me in the door at least to make sure that I was, a I was listened to. But once it got down to really deciding um, and not to confirm who else was in it or not, because quite frankly, I've never asked who else they were considering in the final days for this job. But I tried to convey to Joe and to our president, David Boren, just what I told you, which is my understanding of the importance of this position, not just at the University of Oklahoma, but for the state of Oklahoma and the importance of this football program and this university to the identity of the people here and tried to uh, convey that um, I got it, I understand it, I want to uphold it, I want to treasure it and appreciate how special not just the University of Oklahoma is, but how special it is to sit in the seat as the voice of the Sooners. And maybe someone who wasn't born in this state, raised in this state, um, knows the background of this position and, and all the greats who have come along on that football field and basketball court and everything. 
maybe couldn't um, understand as well as I understood. Whether that's true or not, that's how I tried to differentiate myself. And um, whether or not that was the reason, I don't know. I've never asked. But it's true. It's true. And anybody who you talk to who knows me knows I have a, a true reverence and appreciation for the chair that I'm um, fortunate enough to get to sit in every Saturday of, during the college football season and whatever day of the week a basketball or baseball game may land on. Uh, it's a gift. I want to loop backwards a little bit to where you said that your first couple years you weren't necessarily real good at handling feedback uh, just because probably you were following a legend, Bob Barry, who had been there a long time, and everybody knew he did things a certain way, and you're not going to be uh, the same as Bob Barry coming in. Where was the feedback coming from? Was it coming from message boards? Was it coming from media? Was it coming from some other source? I guess, how did you learn to overcome that? Y- yes is the answer, all the above. <laughs> There's a... There, it, it's uh, wherever you, you can find it on sports radio or uh, message boards or friends and family or coworkers or people in the grocery store or at church or at school when you're picking up your kids or whatever the case may be. There's there's plenty of people who are more than happy to tell you what they like or don't like. Um, and, and for me, that was kind of fun at first because I hadn't had that before. And not certainly to this extent, the fact that um, so many people were listening and had opinions, you know, for, it was a little bit charming for a bit. And then it, then it became, um, something that was a negative, not necessarily because, uh, negative things were being said. There certainly was some of that, but just because I would try to, I found myself trying to craft the way I called a game based on opinions I heard out there of how I should call a game. And, you know, how it kind of, how I got over it was quite frankly, listening to a podcast one day of Vin Scully. And he was telling a story about his early days where he was in his first year with the Brooklyn Dodgers and uh, Red came into the booth one day after he called a game and kind of scolded him and said, uh, you know, do you know what makes you different than everybody else who's ever called a major league baseball game? And Vin Scully said, what, what could that possibly be? And he said, you're Vin Scully. Stop trying to act like everybody else. And Vin Scully said, you know, from that point forward, he said, you're right. I'm just going to be myself and hopefully, um, you know, that's good enough. And I, and that really resonated with me. And I think from that day forward, I decided I'm not going to try to be Bob Barry. I'm not going to try to be John Brooks or uh, who this person over here thinks I should be or call a game the way this person thinks I should. I'm just going to be Toby Rowland. I'm going to be myself, uh, relax in it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what I, whatever flies out of my mouth. And that's why they hired me in the first place, because they trust me. And I relaxed in that knowledge that I didn't have to be anybody but me. And sometimes that has, you know, that means I'm a little bit corny or uh, a little bit uh, too excited on a touchdown or whatever the case may be, but it's me, it's authentic. And there's been a comfort in that from that day forward 
that um, it's just going to have to be good enough because I'm never going to be a better Bob Barry than Bob Barry. I'm never going to be a better John Brooks than John Brooks, but I I'm the best Toby Rowland um, going right now. So I'm going to go, I'm going to just live in that. And it's given me peace. And you know, there's got, you've got to have the discipline to uh, not go to message boards, not, uh, when somebody offers you unsolicited advice to let it be water off your back. And that's a lot easier now than it was in year one and two. I can laugh it off now, but it, it was harder back then. But, you know, you've got to have the discipline to not let it ruin your day. If somebody comes up to you and says, um, I don't, I don't like the way you do this, or I don't like you, you know, some people are perfectly happy to tell me they just don't like me. So, um, uh, it's been a process and I think it just gets easier. Like everything with reps as you go through it. Now a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Hey, football play-by-play announcers. You need to check out sportscastingsource.com right now. There you'll find a couple of tools that will help make your broadcast even better. The down dial is a must-have. You'll never again have to do quick math in your head to know how many yards were gained on a play, especially when it crosses the 50-yard line. This is great for long runs, long passes, and especially punts. This tool does it all for you instantly, and you have to see it. Also, if you call high school or small college games, you probably don't have a stat monitor. So get the football scorebook. Baseball announcers have used a scorebook for years. It's about time one has been designed for football, too. It tracks everything, drive charts, yards, penalties, conversions, all of it right there in an easy-to-use page. Go to sportscastingsource.com right now. Watch the videos on these items and how to use them, then get one for yourself. If you enter the promo code SCORE, S-C-O-R-E, at checkout, you'll get a 10% discount from your total order. Trust me when I tell you, go to sportscastingsource.com. It's the smarter and easier way to broadcast football. It's interesting that you brought up Vin Scully because I was actually just re-listening to one of my old podcasts to potentially repurpose it for some other stuff with Joe Davis. And he talked about the advice that Vin Scully gave him in trying to replace him. Did Bob Barry give you any particular advice since obviously the situations aren't exactly the same, but there are a lot of parallels. Um, Yes, he did. And, uh, I, it was golden to this day. It was not what I was expecting. I, after I I got the job, I went over to his house one day and unfortunately we lost Bob very shortly after he retired. Uh, He he had a heart attack and passed away in the middle of my first football season. But the summer between when he retired and when I took over and I had been, had been named to the position, I went over his house one day and he he gave me his uh, last spotter board that he ever did for an OU football game, and and I asked him I I asked him for some advice, and I said you know what would what would you tell me? And I figured it would be something execution wise, you know, something about how to call a play or how to call a game or something along those lines. And it wasn't. He said the greatest advice I ever received. But this is Bob speaking, and the only advice I could give to you is to be likable. And at the time I thought, you know, that's, 
at the time it didn't really resonate with me, but as, as the days went by and I kind of thought more about that, it has dawned on me that that is what made Bob so special and really what makes what Ben and the greats special. Are they good at describing a single in the right field or a 10 yard run or a three pointer on the break? Yes, they can execute that. But most importantly, they make us want to spend two, three, four hours with them. There's a likability to their voice, to their attitude, to the way they call a game that makes you look forward to spending time with them. Even if you don't know them, you can't wait for them to come on your radio. And uh, Bob had a gift for that. He was great at calling a game, but if you ever heard Bob Barry's voice, he was just so friendly and likable that you're like, man, I want to, I want this guy to be my grandfather. I want this guy to, uh, I want to sit at a bar with this guy and and tell stories. And um, that's hard to do in all cases, because I think in this profession, you get wrapped up with preparation, which is vitally important. And you get wrapped up with execution, which is vitally important and getting the score in and the yard marker in and the time in and all those things that we preach to young play-by-play guys, you got to do this and you got to do that. And we forget while all of that is vitally important, but the number one people, what number one reason people want to listen to you is because they like you. And the number one reason they don't want to listen to you is because they don't like you. And there's got to be a developed likability in your broadcast style that people are comfortable with. You can't annoy them. They're not going to listen to you for three hours if you're annoying, if you're shrill, if you're highly critical all the time. Um, We all have people like that in our lives who, when we're with them for 10 minutes, you're like, I got to get out of here. This person's driving me crazy. That can't be your style. It's not going to work. You've got to be the guy in the room that people want to hang out with. And I think it's the greatest advice Bob ever gave me. What did you have to change about your broadcast style to be more likable, or did you have to? Um, I think it is a settling in when the ball is tipped or the ball is kicked. There is a, there is a settling in to a comfortable call of a game, a pace, a tempo um, that isn't forced. If your voice is sounding forced and pinched and rushed all the time, I think that's a, that's a little hard on the ears of the listener. But if you can kind of settle back into that rocking chair and uh, call the game and take the ride with the fans, then, uh, then I, for me at least, that's been the, the way to go. You know, there's an, there's an element to this where you can prepare and we, we all do all week and we get our meticulously get your spotter boards together and uh, you do your interviews and you write your pregame shows and you edit your audio and there's all the prep that goes into it. But there's a moment where you just get on the buck and bull and all you can do from that point on is ride. You know, the chute opens and all the preparation you've done is out the window and now you're just it's freelance baby and you're just riding and that ride's got to be comfortable it's got to be comfortable for you and it's got to be comfortable for the listening audience 
and 95% of what you say is going to go in one ear and out the other. It's just the course of calling a game. But the 5%, when those five plays a game happen that people are going to remember, you got to nail it. And you can't do that if you're if you're tense and you're stressed and you're um, on edge and you got a migraine headache. So I think there's that that's a that was a little hard for me. I was you know early on in my career I was maybe a little bit nervous and a little tense and you could hear that in my call. And I think through Bob's advice and through experience I've been able to do a better job hopefully of just kind of settling into the rocking chair and and calling a game that people want to listen to. Has there been a moment where it's gone from feeling like you're the guy who replaced the guy to where you're now the guy? Has that happened yet? Does that even make sense? Yeah, no, it makes it makes perfect sense. I I think there was a game more than a moment. I think um, uh, at the end of year three for me, Oklahoma played in the Sugar Bowl against Alabama. And had a big win that night, and an upset win with Trevor Knight at quarterback. And uh, it was a very exciting game with a lot of exciting highlights. And for Sooner Nation, that was a big night. And certainly in my tenure, that was the biggest night we had had until that point. And the five biggest plays from those games, like I was talking about, how many ever there were that night, got relived a lot and replayed a lot and stuck and i think there was a a feeling because that was you know going into that's a bowl game so you're going into an off season after that and I, I i could tell a genuine difference in the fan base you know when you're on the caravan circuit or at, at speaking engagements whatever the case may be in how they um how they responded how they uh treated me how they felt about me after that game so I think there wasn't that was a night in which it went from okay he's our guy now and uh, maybe it's just me maybe I just felt that way maybe that was a big game and I just felt like it went well and and that's the night that I kind of shed uh worrying about it but there was uh certainly a feeling after that night that all right um the honeymoon is over the first couple of years are in the books um They've they've accepted me now, and, and let's go forward with this thing. Everybody has to get into the business somehow. We all have different paths that are mostly unreplicable, but you have to get a foot in the door somewhere. And you started in TV, where you were uh, part of, I believe, News 9 in Oklahoma City for a decade. How did you get your foot in the door, and how did that influence your play-by-play? Yeah, good question. Um I kind of did everything there in the early going. Like I said, I served as the sports information director at Southern Nazarene for five years, if you count my senior year in college. And so I had a little bit of a sports information background in which I got to call some games too. So there was some play-by-play and some, uh, um, you know, uh, publicity side that I learned there. I also uh, did some work at a radio station in town in the early years, either as an intern, uh, started a small, small sports or small college basketball radio show that I would do once a, a week. And so I got my taste of what it's like to do a talk show that way. And every once in a while, they'd let me call some games on there as well. So kept the play-by-play chops warm. 
And my senior year in college, I also interned at, at Channel 9, the CBS affiliate here in Oklahoma City. Um, had a great boss. The sports director was Bill Teagans, who was the voice of the OSU Cowboys. And uh, <laughs> you'll find this uh, amusing, maybe. Uh, but our number three guy, our, our weekend anchor, was Chris Harrison, who is now the host of The Bachelor on ABC and has been for many, many years now. So it was kind of a, it was a fun sports department to be a part of in 1995. Unfortunately, that was also the year of the Murrah building bombing in downtown Oklahoma city. And so while I was interning at KWTV, that happened and CBS national came to town for a couple of months, maybe two or three months and used half of our building to uh, do their shows out of that story obviously became the biggest story in the world for a period of time and 48 hours and 2020 and CBS evening news and Dan rather was the host at the time all worked out of our building. And I got to also help them. And in a incredibly tragic time for the state of Oklahoma, um, the experience of watching the greatest in the craft do their job like that on the news side of things, I, to this day, I find myself still kind of uh, looking back on, but it, they ended up uh, calling me back in, in 1999, 2000 and hiring me as a producer in the sports department there. We had kept in touch through the years. Uh, Bill Teagans, our sports director, you may remember tragically passed away in 2001 and he was a part of that OSU plane crash. And um, so we lost Bill, but I stayed on in the sports department and worked my way on air and was there for 10 years. The question about how that helped me going forward, I think not so much in play by play or calling a game. I, I continued to call games on the side while I was doing that, but in storytelling, um, what I learned either by watching guys put together a 48 hours piece or putting together my own pieces as a sports reporter uh, for 10 years, I, I carry forward today in different ways at the University of Oklahoma. We do a lot of, we have our own uh, television station there on campus uh, that is connected with Fox Sports. So we turn out, we host a lot of shows. We turn out a lot of stories there. We do a scene setter. I do a scene setter every week for the football game and many of the basketball games that airs in the stadium and across our social media platforms where it's basically a two or three minute setup for that night's game that airs right before kickoff. And the ability to, to tell a story in a brief amount of time and to emotionally move people with words is attractive to me. I think it's attractive to everybody in this profession. And whether you do that through the call of a play or through a pre-produced uh, piece and video editing and, and the right music behind it and everything that goes into that, if you can sit down, write something that moves people, um, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. And so I think the television side of, of my experience and my background has certainly helped me in that regard. So I want to preface this by saying I was also an intern at a TV station my senior year in college for about oh, probably six months-ish. And seeing what goes into putting on, you know, the 5, 6, 10 o'clock news and sportscast, running around, getting games, how were you able to do games and do the news at the same time? 
because Friday night is kind of the, the sports guy's time to shine, but that would be when you needed to be out doing high school games. I'm just curious how that worked. Yeah, I didn't, you know, when I was the weekend anchor, um, the, the years that I was the weekend anchor, I didn't do a lot of high school football because you're right. That's pretty much impossible. You're, Friday and Saturday nights are your time to shine at the TV station. And so you're not available for that, but maybe there's some small college basketball or high school basketball during the week on a night off that you can uh, keep your toe in where I really stayed connected. Once that started happening is, is my first foray with the university of Oklahoma. Our TV station uh, was connected with OU um, in a, a partnership kind of a way. And so when OU would need a, a guy to call a softball game, uh, a fill-in guy for a, a baseball game or a women's basketball game or whatever the case may be, um, they would call. And uh, so I was able to do several things for OU through the years um, before I even got the job on the sidelines for them. So it was a hodgepodge of various things throughout the years just to kind of keep yourself as sharp as you possibly can in that uh, skill set. But um yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. Once you kind of get yourself onto the weekends, um, high school football is that's jumping in helicopters and going from stadium to stadium and flying back and filing a report and doing the 10 o'clock news. And there's certainly no time to be uh, doing play by play then. <laughs> we didn't have helicopters. We just had a lot of speeding tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's exactly right. It seems like the next big break for you was when you got the Oklahoma University sideline job. How did that come about? How was the process of getting that position? Well, as I mentioned, we we had a relationship. Our television station, our owner also uh, owned a piece of Sooner Sports Properties, which is the Learfield arm of OU. And so when the University of Oklahoma would need someone, they would tend to look to us first to see if we had anyone at Channel 9 who uh, had a skill set that matched or the availability to do something. Our previous uh, number two guy at Channel 9, when I was the number three guy there, was sideline guy at OU. And uh, he had moved on to something else, and I had moved up to become the two guy. And so when they were looking for somebody new, um, I was at least able to get my foot in the door. They had a, a familiarity with me, and, and so much of this business is is people knowing you or being in the right place at the right time. And so they, they knew of me. They had worked with me. And so there was a, a, an availability there, and, and um, certainly I wanted the job. And at the time, I thought, you know, e- even if this is it, even if it's just for the rest of my working days being the sideline guy at OU, that's unbelievable. I was, I loved it. I mean, there's an element to being down there in the middle of it that is cooler than being up in the press box. You know, I mean, I, I, there's when you're right there and the guys are flying around by you and you can be in the middle of the huddles on the sidelines and interviewing the coach when he walks off the field at halftime or post game or, or whatever the case may be, uh, that's a rush. And the two years I spent on the sidelines at OU were a blast and um, very much thankful that they gave me that opportunity because I think that probably opened the door to the next opportunity. So when you were the sideline guy, Bob Stoops was the head coach, and he is uh, has the reputation of being somewhat Popovichian with uh, the media and sideline <laughs> reporters. Do you have any good stories of 
of snarky comments while he's running into the locker room because he thought a question was uh, not to his uh, liking? You know, um, I love Popovichian. I may I may use that this year. That's great. Uh, I, my very first game on the sidelines was the season opener when OU lost to BYU at Jerry World. Uh, they were, I think, number one or number two in the nation. And Sam Bradford was back, and he got hurt, and they lost. Lost on a last-second field goal try that they missed. And it was a pretty significant upset. I mean, I think OU was a two-touchdown favorite that night or something. And I remember sitting there waiting for Bob to come out for our post-game interview, thinking, you've got to be kidding me. My first post-game interview with Bob is this. I was petrified. I, I You know, the guy is intimidating. I've been in press conference settings with him many times where he either hasn't liked a question I've asked or been a little direct or whatever the case may be. And I learned that night uh, going forward that a lot of times he is easier to deal with after a loss than after a win. He just kind of, you know, stood up and took the blame and, and answered every question directly and went forward. And I thought, huh, that, that was not what I was expecting. And as time went by, I ended up, you know, when I got the play-by-play job, I ended up hosting his coach's show for, well, and, you know, until last year. And so we spent a lot of time together in not just a pre- or post-game situation, but also during the week. And I tell students and and anyone who asks, he is the greatest final exam you could ever have for learning how to ask good questions. He will force you to ask a good question, a well-thought-out good question. If you do, he'll answer it, and he'll answer it brilliantly. And if you don't, if you ask a sloppy question or one that he's already answered, He'll tell you that. That's a bad question. He, and he did many times. Not in a mean way, just kind of a, you know, he's from Youngstown, Ohio, and he's blunt and direct. And I grew to love it and look forward to it and appreciate it. And it was a challenge, uh, a fun challenge. And I think he made me a better interviewer. There's no doubt about it, that he has made me a better interviewer because he demanded it. Um, some people were put off by that, uh, and I could see why. But I grew to appreciate it, and I love Bob. I genuinely, um, you know, I have a, a high, high, high respect and regard for that man, and not just as a football coach, but for um, the way that he has gone about living his life and and helping young men. And, um, it was a, it was a sure, it was a treasure to get to call his games. So how do, if you don't, if we have listeners who are sideline reporters or someday may be sideline reporters, how do you come up with questions that are both well thought out and interesting to the receiver of the question, but still able to be understood by the kind of lowest common denominator viewer? I think that you, you know, the, the number one thing is don't give uh, them an opportunity to say yes or no. 
don't don't ask a question that the answer could be yes or no because then you're hanging in the in the breeze and a lot of times in a rushed situation a coach will take the opportunity to just say yes or no so uh hows and whys are uh, kind of interviewing 101 um ask a question that is going to take an an, an answer that needs a couple of sentences at least so when you're framing the question, oh, my co-host don't is, you know? My co-host is chiming that? in. My co-host is chiming in. Can you hear him? <laughs> I can. Yeah. What kind of dog? That is. I am actually at my brother-in-law's house, and it is a dachshund. The mailman just showed up. <laughs> We're gonna leave this in. I you, like it. You can continue your answer now. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, that's okay. I like it. I have three dogs myself, so uh, I don't. I don't mind that at all. So I think there's, you know, ask yourself the question before you ask it. And uh, if it can be answered short, then, you know, go in a different way. I think with, a lot of times with Bob and with, with especially football coaches, but all coaches, there are so many media interview settings that they have to be in, whether it's pregame, halftime, postgame, a Monday a press conference, a post-practice press conference. I mean, they're just peppered all week. And so my challenge on a Tuesday night coaches show was always, what can I possibly ask them that they haven't already been asked 10 times by now? Um, so we would try to think of creative ways to get into coaching styles or being raised in Youngstown or things he learned from his father or, you know, that's not stuff you would ask at halftime necessarily, but try to get information or, try to see the side of Bob Stoops or Lincoln Riley now that other people don't get the opportunity to see in the course of a normal, how is your quarterback's arm feeling or is your running back's hamstring okay this week or whatever the case may be that he normally gets asked in a press conference situation. So ask, and the other thing is ask a question. I think that the thing that irritates me the most is when a, an interviewer will throw out an opinion and just want the coach to agree with it or disagree with it. Here's my impression of what happened in the first half. Don't you think, you know, that kind of a thing <laughs> that's we're not, we're not in that situation to hear what the sideline guy thinks or that, you know, what their opinion is. We want to know the coach's opinion. So ask a question. What's your question there in that situation? Don't just give me your opinion and ask me to agree with it. This is the best podcast out there. Don't you think? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, it happens all the time. And if you listen for it, if you listen to sports radio hosts or, and I do it from time to time, I'll catch myself, but it happens all the time where you'll start down a, a, a question and really all you're wanting to do is get your opinion out there. Um, rather than av- actually ask coach or a player or whatever the case may be a question. So just ask a question. It sounds simple, but it seems like we have a hard time doing that at times. So you stayed in one market for your entire career, and as we've talked about before on this show, there's a ton of different ways to eventually, for lack of a better word, make it to where you eventually want to be. And your path was staying in one place. Did you ever have a chance to leave, and why did you stay? Um, I never pursued leaving. Now, um... I have, again, I've been incredibly blessed. I grew up an OU fan. 
my dream school was OU. My dream job was to be the voice of the seniors. I wanted to have a career in sports broadcasting, ideally uh, in play-by-play, but if that didn't work out and I was in television for the rest of my life, I could have been happy doing that. I didn't, I didn't hate it. Um, but I wanted to be a play-by-play guy for a career. It's the most fun you can possibly have in this profession is to get to call games. And if that had taken me somewhere else, if the pursuit of that had taken me to Indianapolis or to an ACC team or to the West coast or whatever the case might've been, then I would have, you know, assuming my wife was on board, we would have probably pursued that. I wasn't against it, but to get to call games for your dream school and the, uh, you know, the school that you ho- have always been a fan of your whole life. I mean, who gets to do that? You know, what? Th- I, this is it for me. This is, I get, there isn't a, a job I would rather have on the planet than this, not the New York Yankees, not president of the United States, not anything. I mean, this is, I'm an Oklahoma kid who grew up an Oklahoma Sooner fan who gets to sit front row and be the eyes and ears of Sooner Nation every week. And it has just worked out that way to where I've been able to stay in Oklahoma and live out a dream. And I don't know that I started out with that path or that plan. I think you just kind of go do your best every day and make the best decisions going forward. And maybe you have a, a general plan for what you'd like to do, but you got to be flexible, man. Doors close and windows open and timing sometimes isn't right. Or when it's right, you've got to capitalize. And for all of us, it takes us in different ways. And um, if I had ended up in North Carolina or California or North or South Dakota, I, you know, um, then so be it. I, I, we would have made the best of it, but for it to work out the way that it did. And you're right to get to stay in the same market and, and raise my kids in, in a place I love so much has just, we are so lucky. We are really, really so lucky. And I hope that I get to do this for the rest of my life because it's a dream come true. So I have a couple of listener submitted questions, and this is from Justin in Tennessee. He says, ask him what you would be doing if you had failed as a sportscaster and if there's ever been a point where you've considered getting out of the business. There has not been a point where I've considered getting out of the business. There are uh, being in local television is a hard life for a family, especially a young family like I had then. Uh, If you are to climb the ladder in local television, that means you're doing the, as you well know, the six and 10. So you're working evenings. And uh, I missed a whole lot of picking up kids from school and going to soccer and basketball and baseball games for my kids and being there for my wife for a, a decade. So that's a hard life, uh, but I never considered uh, getting out of the business. Um, what would I be doing if I was not in sports broadcasting? Um, you know, it's a, I would probably still be in, I enjoyed my days in, in media relations. I could see uh, whether it is uh, in sports or with an athletic department or even in the business world, uh, being involved in, in some sort of a, uh, publicity or media relations that would 
that's a quick answer, but um, I had a history there and I enjoyed my time in a sports information department. I still, you know, when I'm around, we're around our media relations guys all the time now and work with them very closely and am intrigued by what they do. So maybe that would be uh, what I'd say. And Adam in Tulsa asks, why do you sign and give away your spotting boards? Um, <laughs> that's a good question, Adam. I don't know why people want them, uh, to be honest with you. Um, several years ago now, I guess it's been three or four years ago now, my spotter, Greg Blackwood, took a picture of our spotter boards before a football game um, and tweeted it out. On we, Our radio crew has a little uh, a Twitter feed. And he kind of, you know, as you do uh, leading up to a game, here's what the field looks like today. You know, look at this tailgate over here, whatever the case may be. He tweeted out pictures of, of the spotter boards that day. And um, somebody asked for him. We won the game. And somebody asked for him. So I don't have a use for it when it's over. Well, you know, once the game's over, I'm making another one for next week. So I said, sure. So, um the whole crew signed the board and we put the score on there and we gave it to this person. And that person I think took a picture of it and put it on Instagram or social media or whatever and got tweeted around. And so next week somebody else said, Hey, can I have next one? And that's been going on now for, I don't know, three, four years. And it has extended into basketball and once in a while in baseball, somebody will ask for one too, but, um, I'm flattered that people care. Uh, they, you know, you put a lot of work into those things and I don't know what to do with them when I'm done calling a game, they would just sit and collect dust at my house. So the fact that we can give them to fans that they want them, that it's a small piece of memorabilia for them. And maybe it's hanging on a wall somewhere in somebody's sports room, or maybe not, I don't know what they do with them. Maybe they throw them away, but the fact that they even care enough to want them and uh, it's, it's, that's flattering. So that's just kind of something cool we've started to do. And uh, um, it's always fun. You get to meet new people too. You know, after a basketball game, people will come down, whoever has the board that night will come down and we'll sign it and we'll get Lon Kruger to sign it for them. And uh, we'll take a picture with them. And we've got to meet a a bunch of uh, Sooner fans all over the country. That's the other thing is wherever we go, when we play on the road, if we're in, basketball teams in Florida or the baseball teams in California, whatever the case may be. And somebody will ask for the spotter board because they get to go to an OU game for the first time in a long time. And they happen to live in that part of the country. And so we get to meet them and take pictures with them and all that kind of stuff. So it's been a, it's been a neat entree into some conversations and, and getting to know Sooner fans all over the, all over the United States. Okay. You also had probably one of the biggest blessing in disguise moments that that I've ever heard of honestly where you had a huge disappointment when you were offered the Thunder the Oklahoma City Thunder sideline gig when they moved to Oklahoma City and just due to internal politics and threats at a lawsuit and all sorts of crazy things you ended up not being able to take that position but that uh, let you led you to becoming the play-by-play voice for Oklahoma. When you look back at that moment, what do you see, and how is it different than what you saw at the time? Um, 
Well, at the time, I was devastated because, you know, we thought our life was about to change. Um, like I said, a local TV is a hard life, and, and we loved Channel 9, but this was the thunder coming to town. This was the NBA coming to Oklahoma City uh, and the opportunity to, one, travel the world with an NBA team, and financially it was going to be a benefit. And schedule-wise for my family, it was going to be – a great boost. And, and we were excited about it. And for, and we thought it was happening and for the rug to kind of get pulled out from under us, not by the thunder. I don't want to, the thunder didn't do anything wrong at all. Just the local radio station I was working for kind of blocked it for the rug to get pulled out from under us was devastating. It was really hard. And, and had I known, had I had any idea that in 2011, I would get this job, I, I certainly wouldn't have been as devastated at the time. Um, but in hindsight, obviously things have worked out great. So I'm not bitter about it. I'm not, um, I don't know how things would have worked out if, if that, if I had gotten that job, I don't know if, if I would have gotten this job, maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't have, I don't know. Maybe, but I don't spend a lot of time living my life in reverse, but in hindsight, um, to go through that, me and my wife and our kids to go through that and to come out the other side and for this to work out the way that it has, it was a, a story that people are aware of in this state. It was in the newspapers and stuff. And it has given me an opportunity to kind of speak to people. I'm a, a professing Christian and to get to speak to people about how when uh, – Sometimes, you know, when God closes the door, he opens a window. And sometimes that window is a bigger and more beautiful than the door in the first place. And certainly that's been true in our lives. And um, I think it's been a nice lesson for me to learn and maybe for my children to learn and, and maybe for some people around us to kind of uh, get strength from, I hope. Was it difficult to continue working uh, for the company that blocked you from doing that in the immediate aftermath? Because you still um, work for them now, right? For my pride, for my pride, yes. But financially, there wasn't an option at the time. Uh, I needed to do that radio show. I, not like I could give up. That if something had, if something else had come along, probably in the weeks following that, I would have been tempted to jump in another direction. But obviously, I was contractually obligated uh, to that radio station, which is why I couldn't do the thunder job in the first place. So there wasn't really an option for me not to do it anymore. But uh, the best thing that happened though, is I still work for that radio station. You might, you might find it shocking, but they changed ownership about six months after all of that. And the new ownership has been uh, unbelievable to work for. And I consider one of my best friends uh, to this day, so I still work work for that station. I still do a show every morning on that very same station. And uh, um, yeah, I mean that was a, that was hard in the weeks immediately after. I had some hard feelings, but you get through that and you work through it. And you move on, and uh, in hindsight, uh, things have worked out great. So we have nothing we have nothing to uh, be bitter about or have hard feelings about because we're in an unbelievable position right now. So now to more happy stuff. One of the things I love to ask people who do call-in shows with fans 
in post-game situations or really any situations is that there are a lot of strange people out there that call into call-in shows with unique <laughs> ideas, we'll call them. What are some of your most memorably weird call-ins from fans? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I'm trying to think of specific ones. We have, we, we've had some doozies, I promise you. We have a, a pretty, you know, a regular caller to some extent. Who, whose name is the prophet who, who takes great pride in being able to foresee the future and is gloom and doom on everything that OU ever does. So we have a lot of fun with the prophet because he's always telling us how uh, Bob Stoops or Lincoln Riley or Lon Kruger, or whoever has uh, forever doomed the university of Oklahoma going forward. But I'm trying to think of a, a specific call, but yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. I mean, it is, uh, it is interesting, especially after a loss and especially in the role that I'm in now to, uh, try to walk that tightrope between operating a sports radio show and being the play by play voice of a, of a university that can be, uh, tricky at times, but, um, yeah, if I if I can think of a specific call that uh, was a humdinger, I'll I'll jump in and let you know. I can't think of one right now, but I'm sure it was probably from the prophet, whatever it was. <laughs> um, a couple questions uh, before I get you out of here. I have one more, and then just kind of the final ones that I ask everybody. Uh, you, if I'm correct, I have listened to you before, but not a whole lot. And I was told that you have a catchphrase where you say, oh, mama, on big plays. How did that come about? Um, oh, mama just came flying out one day. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of guys. I think a part of the school where you don't, you know, plan out necessarily what you're going to say. Uh, there's not a lot in my career that I've written down and, and plan to say, uh, like I said, I came to a, a piece which is kind of settling into being me and me is a kid from Mustang, Oklahoma, whose dad is a preacher and kind of has the colloquialisms of someone who grew up in this part of the country. And Oh, mama's just something I kind of say, and my dad kind of says, and there was a big play my first year and that just came flying out as a way to cap the play. Like what a play. Oh mama, what a play, you know? And it, it, people liked it, you know, got, we got some positive feedback. And so the next time a big play happened, it came flying out again. And now it's kind of become a thing. And honestly, I don't say it as much as probably people think I do. Um, maybe once a game. And there's certainly some games where it's, uh, twice or in maybe a bowl, you know, a championship game or whatever, more than that. But there's a lot of games where it never happens. I might average once a game. It's just, it tends to be the big play and it gets replayed a lot. And so that is what has kind of stuck through the years, but it's just, um, it's just one of those things. And I, I, I think it's gotta, you know, catchphrases or whatever you're known for has to come from an, an honest place from a natural place or it feels trumped up, you know, it feels like you're a sports center anchor trying to come up with something clever to say and force it in. If it's not organic, then I don't think it feels right. And 
that was just organic, man. I mean, I, you know, that's just, that's something that came flying out and that's just the way I talk. And, um, so yeah, that, uh, if you listen to an OU football game or basketball game and something great happens, that might, that might come flying out. What are some of your broadcast horror stories? And what, uh, if you're not familiar with the podcast, I ask everyone for these. These are the moments where something just goes terribly wrong in a broadcast that you either, maybe you can control, but you weren't able to control at that time, that mortified you at the moment, that uh, you can look back and laugh at now. <laughs> um a couple come to mind, uh, and I don't know that I would consider either one of them horror stories, but we lost power. The entire press box lost power in the second quarter of an OU Texas game uh, four or five years ago, football game at the Cotton Bowl. And, um, you know, it's one of those situations where you just you hear everything go dead in your headphones. And you think it's going to come right back on. Somebody's kicked the power switcher. I mean, it's not good, but you, you don't figure it's going to be an extended period of time. And sure enough, everything's dead. We start looking around, and, and Craig Way in the Texas booth is in a panic, and all the riders on beyond them, and we can see them in the glass windows, and they're all trying to figure out what's going on. And so I do what you do in that situation and, and grab the cell phone and call Learfield and start calling the game on a cell phone. And it ends up being you know, 17 minutes, I think something like that, 15, 17 minutes of real time, which if you're calling a football game solo into a cell phone, seems like about an, an hour and a half, but that wasn't that bad of a situation. The, the funny part of that was our engineer, Michael Dean, who's been uh, doing university of Oklahoma games forever is like a spider monkey climbing around the booth, trying to figure out where to plug things in. And he's standing on people's shoulders. And, you know, it's, it was, in hindsight, we laugh about it frequently because it was pandemonium around me as I'm trying to call a game solo into a cell phone. So that was a, a funny moment. I think the the on-air moment that I uh, regret the most is uh, several years ago, we were playing a football game in Lubbock. And uh, Javon, I called a play where Javon Foster got a pick six for us big moment in the game the moment in the game was a pick six that javon foster took back to the house and OU wins it and uh you go on uh you know in the rest of the game and you do the uh, post game show and everything and i drove to lubbock that night and i'm in the car on the way back and i hear the highlight come on whatever national radio show i'm listening to and there it is it's javon foster with the pick six to win it and it dawns on me what i've said we don't we don't have a javon foster but there's there's no such player as javon foster at the university of oklahoma we have a javon and we have another guy named foster and in the heat of the moment i've combined the two into a fictional character and i i butchered the play i i didn't know i said it at the time and nobody around me told me I said it at the time. Maybe they were scared to tell me. I don't. Maybe they didn't hear it. I don't know. But I completely butchered the uh, uh, call of the most important play of the game. And uh, certainly my radio partner, who I do the show with in the morning, heard it and grabbed it and has replayed it a thousand times since then. <laughs> and uh, they enjoy making fun of me frequently. Uh, Javon Foster has become a legend in uh, University of Oklahoma circles because he only made one play 
and he won a game with it uh, back then. He's kind of like Sasquatch. Nobody's ever really seen him, but it was an embarrassing moment for me, and I felt bad uh, for the young man who actually had the interception that uh, he had a big moment like that, and, and we called him the wrong name. Walk us through, since football is right around the corner, uh, walk us through your prep process starting you know, after, after Saturday evening after a game. Okay. Um, not much Saturday evening after a game. Just kind of relax. And honestly, uh, Sunday I try to uh, relax as much as possible too and be with my family. M- my uh, work week will usually start Sunday evening uh, when people go to bed is when I'll try to write the scene setter. And I find that I write a little bit better when I'm a little bit tired, not, not completely sleepy, but in a good kind of reflective frame of mind. And so I'll try to write a little bit on Sunday night. Uh, Monday is when you start to uh, put in the nuts and bolts, really just put in the nuts and bolts of a, of a spotter board and get heights and weights and, you know, adjust your board from a four, three to a three, four or, uh, color coatings or whatever needs to go into that. I do my own boards. I don't ship them off to a company that sends them back or anything. I like to be hands-on and do my own boards. So a lot of the nuts and bolts will be on Monday, Tuesday. On Monday, I also have some TV duties. Uh, there's a press conference show that we host on Monday. Uh, Tuesday, is the Lincoln Riley show. And again, throughout the week, you just kind of keep tinkering with those boards as you go along. So as uh, biographical information or quotes or depth charts start to come out on Monday and Tuesday, then you can uh, get a little more uh, involved with those. Tuesdays, I'll do a Lincoln show that evening at a local barbecue restaurant. Um Let's see. There's another TV show on on Tuesday before that that we do in the afternoon called The Spotlight, which is a half-hour show that kind of is about everything other than football. And then the rest of the week, I teach a class on on Wednesday. But from Wednesday after that class on, um, I go dark to some extent in just trying to get all the preparation done. I don't have any more TV shows to host. Uh, I'll try to get the opposing coach Usually they're they're more than happy to oblige, and we'll try to get an interview with the opposing coach that we can run in our pregame show at some point. But you spend the rest of you know Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, getting your spotter boards exactly like you want them, editing audio. We play a lot of audio in our pregame shows, writing script for pregame shows, and halftime interviews, sponsor interviews, everything that goes into um, getting yourself ready for Saturday. My kind of my golden rule is I want to be done on Friday night. Uh, maybe that means I have to stay up late, but when I go to bed Friday night, I want the hay to be in the barn. One, because I sleep better if I know that everything is, is done. And two, I want to be able to wake up on Saturday and enjoy college football. Not watch it necessarily, because we don't get to watch very much in this job. But I, I want to be able to get up and say, all right, I'm ready. I'm prepared. I've done everything to get ready for this broadcast. Now let's go do it. And, you know, there's pregame shows on campus and there's there's mingling with fans. And, and if you're prepared and ready to go, I just find I enjoy Saturday a lot more than if I know I have to get up and still uh, get a few more things done. So 
I probably skipped over something along the way there at some point, but that's kind of uh, uh, in an outline what the week looks like. You've mentioned several times that you have your dream job right now, but people who who achieve uh, like you have generally are motivated to continue improving regardless. What do you do to continue to improve as a broadcaster? Um, but that's a good question. I, I think that you, if you always have a, a, a willingness to stretch yourself, a willingness to challenge yourself, um, a willingness to learn from others, uh, and, and realize that you, you know, you can be better than every day, every, every season certainly will present itself in a way that you can say, oh, I, I, I can do that better this year, or I do that better now than I did last year. Why didn't I do that before? And that's one of the reasons I like listening to other people call games because inevitably when you're listening to somebody else, you say, oh, man, that's really cool. The way they described how the runner hit the hole there or how uh, the point guard exploded to the rim that I've never thought of describing it that way before. Maybe I could work that into my repertoire a little bit. Um, you know, the most recent thing, like I mentioned is, is uh, getting an opportunity to be an adjunct professor at OU. And, and I've stretched my horizons a little bit that way and try to see if we can help um, some other kids who have dreams like I had many years ago. And so sometimes it's in the booth, sometimes it's beyond the booth. And we are given a, a platform here that can help be a positive influence on other people's lives. Um, whether that is with a charitable organization or whether it is in a broadcasting sense in some regard, I think there's always ways that you can look to expand and, and, um, challenge yourself to take on more or, or be better, uh, at what you're doing. So, you know, in some sense, you, when it comes to calling a game, you get to a comfortable point. And I don't think you want to necessarily tinker with that a whole lot. You're not going to change who you are as a play-by-play guy too awfully much. People don't want you to, you know, they, they become comfortable with listening to you on a Saturday, a certain way. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't get a little better with your adjectives or with your verbiage or with your descriptiveness or with the way you construct a pregame show or a postgame show or how, uh, how you interview a coach or conduct a coach's show on a Tuesday night, interact with fans or uh, MC a caravan or whatever the case may be. So um, we have a lot of duties in this job and there's always room to figure out how to get better at them or take on more. When Oklahoma has a bye week, who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to uh, both on the national scene and maybe on a little bit more local under the radar basis? Um, I tell you in our conference, I think Brian Estridge at TCU does a great job. There are a lot that do, but he's the guy that I think I get the biggest kick out of listening to around here. He's, uh, he's a funny, I don't know if you had the chance to talk to Brian or not. He's a, 
uh, I would, if you haven't, I would encourage you to, he's a funny guy and is, he definitely falls into that likability, likability category I was talking about before. I think he comes across, um, extremely likable. I don't know that as you framed the question, probably on a bye week you're going to find me trying to escape, you know, too much work or too much listening to other people. But I get the the point of your question is who do I like to listen to on, on a bye week I'm probably going to try to be dad and husband and uh, maybe watch some football, but not engross myself in listening to too many other people. But I do like, you know, on the way to games or on the way home from games, I've got about an hour commute and satellite radio is a wonderful thing. And flipping around the country and listening to different people is, uh, uh, is a whole lot of fun. I hate to start naming people cause I'm going to leave somebody out and I'm going to make somebody angry. So I'll just leave it at Brian, but uh, there's a lot of talented people out there who are a lot better at it than I am. And, and I'm thankful that I get to, uh, steal some of their nuggets from time to time. Well, once again, we are talking with uh, Toby Rowland. He is the voice of the Oklahoma Sooners. And, Toby, if someone wanted to reach out to you, what would the best way to do that be? Well, um, you know, I'm on Twitter. So at T-R-O-W, that's T-R-O-W-O-U, is probably a pretty good way uh, to do that. And I'd be happy to, yeah, hopefully shoot me a a message there and be uh, love to always speak with uh, listeners or, or fans or, or whatever the case may be. Toby, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks again to Toby Rowland, the voice of the Oklahoma Sooners, for joining me on the show today. I want to remind everybody to please subscribe to the show and follow the show's social media outlet of your choice by visiting saythedamnscore.com and clicking on the big red subscribe button at the top of the page. Also, I very much appreciate any honest feedback that can help me make the show even better. That's through iTunes reviews emails, whatever you want, and I just appreciate the feedback. So thank you for listening today. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, remember to say the damn score just a little bit more.